0: Good afternoon. Happy Wednesday, friends. Welcome aboard. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Thanks for being with us here today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot going on here on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Just within the last uh, hour or so, the federal heritage minister has confirmed the federal government has reached a deal with Google. And this is basically at this point now to rescue the Online News Act. So this is a $100 million detail. We'll have details on that coming up this afternoon. A little bit later on, we'll get to the details as well. A big announcement uh, up near Edmonton today, Fort Saskatchewan specifically. A nearly $9 billion project from Dow Chemicals supported by the Alberta government, the federal government. This is going to be a net zero petrochemical plant love the latest on that a lot of other stuff to get to this afternoon your calls as well of course 403-974-8255 we've seen some recent progress on the inflation front we've seen the inflation rate ease over the last couple of months some optimism from the bank of canada that maybe things are trending in the right direction toward that 2% target uh food inflation is still lagging uh, some indication when it comes to market prices that uh, we will see a further decrease in food inflation uh, in the months ahead. But, of course, that doesn't undo all of the inflation we've seen over the last couple of years. We've seen sharp increases in food prices. So even if food inflation eases, you know we're not seeing food prices drop. Uh, so we still have to to manage all of those increased costs. And that's been tough on a lot of Canadians, clearly. So what's been driving that? I mean, when it comes to inflation overall, there are a lot of factors. But when we look at food prices, right, there's some, some clearly some more specific factors at play in what's driving the cost of, of certain commodities and uh, supply chain and the overall cost of the end product. Some important new research uh, out this week from the C.D. Howe Institute trying to get to the bottom of all of this it's called unpacking the real sources of rising food prices you can read more at cdhow.org but joining us on the line this afternoon to talk more about this study is its author Werner Antweiler a socio-professor at UBC where he holds the chair in international trade policy and has mentioned the author of this report that you can find at cdhow.org professor Antweiler good to have you with us here welcome to the program good afternoon, Rob. So, to what extent can we detach food inflation from overall inflation, right? To what extent does it have its own unique circumstances and causes?
1: Yeah, it's, um, first of all, very volatile. It's uh, so volatile that the Bank of Canada actually takes it out of its calculation of core inflation and they set the, the interest rates for the country. Uh, so, it has its own dynamic and it's not only driven by local factors and local production, but also there's a, an extended supply chain for many goods that we're actually importing. Uh agricultural products from around the world and things that are going into farming, like fertilizers. And so when we look at all of that together, it it basically has driven up food prices higher than the overall consumer price index, and that is all the pain we're feeling when we go to the grocery stores.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the numbers really jumps out in your paper that uh, overall food prices have risen 24.1% over the course of four years, so all of that annualized inflation adds up.
1: That's right. And there's nothing that actually has gotten cheaper. So all, all food prices across the board of all the different items that we have been tracking uh, statistically, they have gone up. But it, what it stands out is that uh, there is a lot of differences across the different types of food products that we purchase from the stores. Right. Uh, some have gone up a whole lot more than others. And, and so there are very specific factors that are driving, for example, the increase in the, the price of fats and oils or the price of wheat, as opposed to, say, the, the, the price of meats or dairy products.
0: So maybe we can get into some of those specifics, but if we take a step back and look big picture, what what are the big forces or factors that have been driving up the cost of food in recent years?
1: Yeah, so when we sort of unpack it, uh, first there is uh, climate change and the effect it has on agricultural production and so sort of the, uh, the, the crops that's coming in every year. Uh, there is some variation across locations. There are some regions that have been impacted by weather events and climate change. Uh, but there are also then the issues with the uh, supply chain. I mentioned fertilizers, and the price of fertilizers has gone through the roof in 2022, mostly because uh, some of the major supplies, including Russia, actually, are. Uh, impacted by uh, the global geopolitical events. And then uh, we see um, higher energy prices um, that um, also were a result of the situation in Europe uh, that has actually spilled over into fuel prices uh, and all the, uh, the farmers actually who rely on diesel fuels for their operations had to pay more to actually um, uh, produce goods uh, that they sell in the uh, in grocery stores. And finally, wages um, are also going up. So labor costs are going up. Uh, there have been labor shortages, especially because of COVID first, Um, uh, Farm workers couldn't be brought in uh, that uh, companies relied on. They had to rely on more expensive local workers. And all that has sort of spilled over into these higher food prices. So it's not a single factor that we can point to. There's no scapegoat here. uh, But it's a combination of all these things. And that has uh, led to this picture that is quite different across these different food items.
0: Well, and, and certainly, you know, there, there, there's political dimension to all of this and attempts to find scapegoats that we've seen from from political leaders on both the left and right. The suggestion on, on one side that there's corporate greed that's been driving up prices. There's uh, suggestions on the other side that it's government taxes, regulations, or the carbon tax specifically, that's driving up food prices. So what about those two arguments?
1: Well, uh, these two arguments actually um, don't really add up. Uh, they cannot explain what we see in the data. They cannot explain the heterogeneity across the, uh, the, the board we see across different food items. Um, if it uh, was well, just grocery chains uh, all adding up um, uh, higher margins, we should see this more across the board. And the same is when it comes to fuel prices, we should see the most fuel-intensive products actually are gaining more than, uh, than those that are not uh, fuel-intensive or um, energy-intensive. But we don't see that in the data. So these explanations just don't hold up. Uh, And it's kind of simplistic when you just try to find one reason. Yeah, it's just it's just not that it's a combination of many different things uh, that is uh, adding up and driving up prices. And that is this uh, uh, big difference that we see across the different food items that cannot be explained by a single factor.
0: Right. So you don't see much evidence behind the, you know, the gouging allegation either, then?
1: No, no. I, I, I basically look at the markups uh, in the grocery business, the wholesale uh, and the, the retail operations. And these margins are actually not that large. Uh, of course, here in Canada, we don't have as many uh, food suppliers as maybe in the United States. But if you look at other jurisdictions around the world, um, they're kind of similar to Canada. Uh, it, it's relatively concentrated because our are economies of scale in uh, warehouse management and transportation. Uh, but the markups are just not that large. Um, uh, food is such an uh, important item where people can substitute that um, it's very difficult for, for companies to, to drive up prices. Uh, there is just not this very strong effect for market structure that we see, for example, in the banking sector or um, uh, for uh, uh, cell phones.
0: The situation in Ukraine, I wanted to talk about the impact there. I mean, we don't get you know, beef or, or fruit or vegetables from Ukraine, but, uh, I mean, Ukraine is a, is a major grain supplier to the world. Russia, obviously, is, is relevant. So when, you know, when Ukraine gets invaded, when there's sanctions on Russia, what's been the impact on commodity prices, on other farm input prices stemming from that?
1: Yeah, actually, it's uh, transmitted through different channels. Uh, first, uh, we have seen this Im- humongous increase in, in fuel prices in 2022. So that has been uh, a worldwide effect, uh, and uh, that is a major input into uh, uh, farm production. They all require fuel for uh, their operations. So that was the, the first shock. Uh, but we also have seen um, product coming uh, offline that was produced by Ukraine, namely wheat. And so we actually see a significant effect on wheat prices around the world, and that is. A effect in Canada too because of the substitution so it's a global market and so when the there's a shortage that's global it's driving up prices everywhere and that's exactly what we see here in in Canada as in other countries around the world our prices for wheat have gone up uh, and um, we also see uh, the effect on fertilizers which uh, actually Russia is a major producer and and so this um, uh, is just missing in the market and it's basically driving a shortage that is then translating into higher prices
0: So some of the differences we see, and and maybe there's specific reasons for each, but it does seem confusing to people that why would uh, some fruits and vegetables, you know, why is some more affordable and others have seen big increases? Why are some kinds of meat still more affordable? Others have seen large increases. How do we explain these, these little differences?
1: Yeah, so then one has to really look very carefully at each market and the, the drivers of supply and demand in each market. Uh, when it comes to fruit and vegetables, some of them are brought in from particular locations. Uh, we can see very strong effects because it's, it's geographically concentrated and what happens in that particular region in terms of the, the, the weather and the climate, uh, that plays a major role. So, for example, when we look at bananas, the price of bananas has risen very little compared to most other vegetables like apples or oranges. So, what is the explanation? local factors because we're only importing bananas from very specific locations. Same is true for uh, greenhouse products, uh, for example, uh, tomatoes uh, or, or lettuce. Uh, so all of that is coming from these particular locations that are impacted in a in a unique way, and so we see significant differences. But the good news is, um, <laughs> vegetables and fruits actually have risen less than than the overall average, and uh, other things like beef has gone up more, and pork uh, has actually gone uh, not gone up as much. So there's a relative price difference in these uh, products because they're unique factors that are driving the production of say beef versus pork
0: now is there some relief in sight i know some and sort of looking at you know the the commodity the egg the future markets you know suggest that maybe there there is some further downward pressure on on food prices still to come Uh, is it too soon to say or what, what are your thoughts on that
1: the, the good news right now is that um, the input prices uh, for farm production are coming down a bit. Uh, energy costs have come down a bit over the course of this current year, and we see also the price of fertilizers uh, leveling off. And so there's some stability uh, in coming back into the market, but it's uh, kind of slow. And there's some pressures that actually remain. And the, the largest pressure I see in the data is in the category that we call edible fats and oils. It includes margarine. Uh, these uh, prices have really skyrocketed more than anything else. And so we were wondering, you know, what is going on there? Why why is margarine and edible fats and oils going up like crazy, yeah. spilling over a little bit into the, the market for butter as well? Uh, and the answer is, um, there is actually a policy out there around uh, the world that is supporting the production of biofuels. And biofuels needs feedstock that's coming currently from things such as corn. Right. And that is uh, getting into the market for, for these oils and fats that are uh, used to produce things like margarine. And uh, so this diversion of agricultural output uh, not into the food market but into uh, the production of biofuels is uh, a key factor that's uh, going to keep up prices uh, in that category.
0: Very interesting. Much more is mentioned, cdhow.org. Werner, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. That is uh, Werner professor, associate professor at UBC, holds the chair in international trade policy and uh, authored this report for the CDO Institute on what's been driving food prices. There's a lot of uh, international factors at play, he says. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here, 403-974-8255. You want to join in the conversation. And, and I want to get some of your thoughts after our next uh, chat here on the, the whole issue of electric vehicles. Like, what would it take to convince you to buy an electric vehicle? or maybe you already have. Now, certainly the federal government wants to nudge you in that direction. So we've got some new regulations that will be coming into force here that at least 20% of new vehicles sold in Canada uh, by 2026 need to be zero emission so basically electric vehicle, and that number rises to 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. A lot happening in 2035. Uh, so there's, there's that. But in the meantime, you've still got choice, and consumers are voting with uh, their wallets. As a well. worse, some new research uh, shows that demand for electric vehicles is falling. Now, this is part of what we're seeing in the market. So we saw car prices really get out of hand, you know, 2020, 2021. So there's been some stabilization. So the average used car price, uh, these new numbers from iccars.com, down about 5%. But used EV prices are down 33.7. So you have seen those prices come down because demand is really dropping. On the other hand, though, um, there's a steady demand for gasoline vehicles and really steady demand as well for hybrid vehicles. So we've kind of convinced people to go electric, but the hybrid models are the ones that really seem to have appeal. So joining us to talk a bit more about what these numbers are telling us, where consumer demand is going, what the automakers are likely to do in response, and what it means for for all of these regulations and and that push for electric vehicles. Uh, Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Carl Brower, is an executive analyst at iccars.com. You can read more at I-S-E-E cars.com. Carl, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
2: Hey, hey, great being on here, Rob. Thanks for
0: having me. So this is quite an analysis of not just use or new vehicle sales, but also used vehicle sales. So first of all, what is the data telling us here?
2: Well, you know, a lot of it points to a similar trend that we've been seeing for a while, which is just a reduction in electric vehicle values and demand and sales. And uh, on the value side, we could point to Tesla and Elon Musk, who really cut the price of his new uh, models. And of course, the used market follows new and really all of the EV market follows Tesla because he represents such a huge percentage of it. Mm-hmm. So, so all by himself, by cutting the prices drastically on his new Tesla products over the past year, he's really shattered the used price for his own cars and the new and used prices for other EVs. Um, but what's kind of more interesting and maybe troubling to some people is that in spite of these drops in prices new and used, the cars are taking longer to sell and they're not selling as many.
0: Right, and so that's a a telling point because I I suppose there's a need to distinguish when we see prices coming down, how much of that is due to a drop in demand, how much of that is due to a lot of these supply chain issues over the last few years kind of sorting themselves out.
2: Right, right, and that's exactly right. We're seeing a little bit of a rebalance. I mean, you know, all used cars on average are down about 5% in price compared to a year ago. So that's a sign that, you know, for various reasons we're starting to balance supply and demand a little more instead of it being so short on supply and high on demand, which it was most of COVID. But you know, five percent down for the average used car and then thirty three point seven percent down for yeah. the used EVs, uh that's more than just a, a rebalancing of supply and demand. There's a lot more going on there.
0: Well there is, and we, we don't see a similar drop with with hybrid vehicles. So there there's still a demand, I guess, for some degree of of electric vehicle capability, but uh, hybrids seem to be a a much bigger selling point.
2: 100%. And, you know, they're down 9.6%, which is more than the 5% for the average used car, but less than a third of the 33.7% for for, um, used pure EVs. So hybrids are still doing quite well. When we looked at the fastest selling, we look at like days on market, how long it takes a car to sell. When you look at the fastest selling new cars, Uh, seven of the top 10 are hybrids. So there's a lot of interest in hybrids. And I I equate it to kind of the public kind of embracing and figuring this technology out. It it really kind of of went mainstream 20 years ago with that uh, 2004 Prius. Mm -hmm. But there were plenty of people who were asking questions when there wasn't even such thing as a plug-in hybrid. You know, I don't want to plug it in. What about the battery and all that? Everyone hasn't figured out hybrids, but enough of the consumer buying car buying public uh, population has figured it out and so now people are realizing wow i pay a little bit more but not that much more than a pure gas car i get substantially better fuel efficiency and i never have range anxiety and if i get a plug-in hybrid i even get pure ev like behavior up to 30 to 40 to 50 miles so on my daily use i often don't use the engine at all this is starting to get figured out by people and it's reflected in uh, the hybrid demand that we see
0: So what's the difference, then, do you think, with uh, demand for straight-up electric vehicles and why that's softening?
2: I think you have all these requirements you need for an electric vehicle. Like, there are so many things that are pushing against electric sales right now. If you think about it first, they're always more expensive than the equivalent gas car. So you have to pay more for them. And if you're financing a car, which almost everyone does, you've got to pay more for the financing because interest rates are, you know, double what they were or more compared to a year and a half, two years ago. So you have to pay more and pay more to finance an electric car versus a gasoline car. Then you need a place to charge it at your house, and you probably have to install a charger if you want to use it overnight, not have to use the infrastructure. And then if you want to go and use the infrastructure, a lot of people are running into a lot of the same problems that we've seen for years, whether it's there isn't a charger near them. There's a charger, but it's vandalized. It's not working. There's a charger, but it's not very fast. The pay system doesn't work. There's three people in line in front of me when I get there. So I have to wait a long time before I can start. You have a certain percentage of the population that will push past all of these problems. And when we looked at the numbers in terms of market share, we saw that 7 to 10% was kind of a top share in states like Oregon and Washington and California. And then you don't seem to get much higher than that. Like Those states are also growing their share the slowest. So I feel like there's maybe somewhere between seven, 10, 11% of the market that has the ability to get past all this. They've got the space for the uh, charger and the house to put the overnight charger in and the budget to have multiple cars. And so a lot of the other problems with EVs like the infrastructure doesn't bother them. But that group buys their EVs and then then you're having trouble getting past that group. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Plus, you add in the um, economic concerns that people are having, and people don't get less risk-averse. They get more risk-averse right. when they're starting to wonder about their employment and interest rates and you know what's going on with the economy. And when you're in that mindset where you're not sure what's going to happen, you're not very likely to try a brand-new type of technology you've never tried before on a really expensive item.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned states like Oregon and Washington, where, where they do have winter, and up here in Canada, where where we certainly do. And I mean, look, the the Canadian government has some you know EV mandates coming in in the coming years. But you know, what about those concerns about winter driving and the reliability of battery technology in these EVs?
2: That's an, an, a, nother mm-hmm. a a whole other issue and another one that people are rightfully concerned about because. Again, you lose a lot of range when you get below certain temperatures, ambient temperatures uh, in the vehicle. And people talk about, well, you can precondition, you can turn on the heater and all that. That's fine. But once you pull out of the garage and start driving, and if it's, you know, 18 degrees instead of even 38 degrees or certainly 68 degrees, you get a whole different level of range from these vehicles. And the same thing, you know, on the truck side, you see a lot of people, they've discovered whether it's the cold weather, whether it's towing, whether it's payload, they start using an EV truck as a real truck and not just a device to move move themselves around with, and their range drops off. And a lot of people want to point out, well, gasoline cars get worse gas mileage in cold or extreme cold or heat, and, and gasoline trucks lose half their range when they're towing something super heavy, too. They might lose half their range. All that's true, but you solve that problem in five to ten minutes at one of the you know tens of thousands of gas stations around you when that when you're out of range you don't do that with an electric car you got to find the charger hope it works hope the pay works hope it's fast charging hope it's not vandalized and hope there's not three people in front of you
0: in terms of then the the automakers themselves in you know responding to what consumers uh, seem to want there's an appetite for hybrids still a lot of demand for gasoline vehicles there's obviously as mentioned a kind of a regulatory push uh, to some extent towards electric vehicles so how are they responding or how how are they likely to respond in the coming years
2: there's clearly some kind of reorientation you know we just saw some announcements from uh, General Motors this week you know talking about they did pretty well in in some of their revenue and now they're maybe going to be reevaluating how hard they're going on the electric vehicle production, the electric uh battery production, producing batteries. There's definitely kind of a reassessment. There's clearly a reassessment. And I always felt like these manufacturers, you know, they they need to say the right thing at the right time and they need to take the right stance at the right time. And I can't believe they aren't in their own private boardrooms with no one's around running Scenarios like crazy just like the military run scenarios on various things that could happen in the world I'm sure they're all running scenarios on okay If slash when there's an issue with selling EVs if slash when there's a change in the political winds on how hard we're gonna push EVs. What's our next? What's our shift? What's our plan when that happens if slash when that happens? I'm sure they've all been doing that and they've got them in place So as is so often the case in life and certainly in the automotive industry uh Future plans are always up for reassessment. And we've seen that for decades, and we're going to keep seeing it.
0: Much more of these data and much more. It's a great resource, iccars.com. Carl, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Really appreciate the insight and all this.
2: Always great being on with you. Thank you.
0: Likewise. There you go, Carl Brower, executive analyst, iccars, I S E E, cars.com. So, good overview of where demand is going and, and everything that the manufacturers need to balance here. So, look, if, if prices are going to continue to come down, I mean, that could actually end up being a selling point at some point for electric vehicles. Because right now, it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. But there's a lot of risk. You know, when people are buying a vehicle, there's a lot that you factor in, right? What do you need it for? Now, what are your costs? What's the cost of buying the vehicle? What are going to be the cost of, of driving and maintaining that vehicle? You know, so we've we got a lot of uncertainty when it comes to electric vehicles in terms of how and where you're going to charge it. Uh, what's the reliability as we navigate to the cold winter months? Those are big questions. And so it's understandable that consumers are maybe having some second thoughts. I don't know if governments have fully thought through all of these mandates. Uh, one of the texts I uh, got earlier makes a pretty reasonable point. Why not include hybrids then? If people are comfortable with hybrids, if they give that, that reliability uh, aspect... That seems like it's a much easier sell to convince people uh, to to abandon you know strictly gasoline vehicles. Welcome back. I guess you could uh, chalk this up as a a pretty good day for the federal liberals. Uh, The governing liberals, of course, uh, have had all kinds of uh, political woes as of late and uh, really sinking in the polls. And we'll talk a bit more about some of that. We mentioned before the news, the news out of the U.S., uh, these indictments regarding some India plots, uh, murder plots rather connected to the Indian government. I think that uh, further vindicates you know, the, the controversial declaration the prime minister made a few months ago. You've got word today that the government has reached a deal with Google that salvages part of the Online News Act. It's also a big announcement in Alberta today, and everyone putting on a happy face. Announcement of a $9 billion net zero petrochemical facility near Fort Saskatchewan here in Alberta, supported by both the Alberta government and the federal government. Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Friedland was on hand for the announcement today, but one of the questions to her was about her party's leader. The party's faith in their current leader, whether she or or others like Minister Champagne might see themselves as possible successors.
2: We have a great prime minister and my focus is 100% on supporting the prime minister. Francois-Philippe is a fantastic colleague. Randy Boisno is a fantastic colleague. And I think what you've seen today is a government that has an economic plan, that has an economic plan, that is delivering investment and jobs and growth for Canadians, for Canadian communities. And as a team, we are all 100% committed to supporting the Prime Minister and working hard to continue to deliver for Canadians. Thanks.
0: Not a surprise. I don't know that anyone would have expected anything different. But those questions are there for a reason. As much as Justin Trudeau has been the face of the Liberals, almost the brand unto himself for the party, Canadians are starting to tire of him. And his own numbers, much like the party's numbers, uh, have have been sinking almost into record-low territory. New numbers out from Ipsos show about three-quarters of Canadians believe it's time for Justin Trudeau to make way for somebody else. So Justin Trudeau stay or go, 72% say step down. Even 33% of liberals say step down. So joining us to talk more about these numbers, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sean Simpson, senior VP with Ipsos, which, as mentioned, conducted this uh, polling exclusively for Global News. Sean, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, so let's unpack this a little bit more. When you've got almost three quarters of Canadians saying that uh, the prime minister needs to go, what, what does that say to you, first of all?
3: Well, what I like to do is track it back to September when it was 60%. So in just two months, it's up 12 points, yeah. So when you understand uh, the sort of severity of of the momentum, it it sort of brings even more to that figure. Um, And as you noted, uh, 33% of Liberal voters, and that is, by the way, Liberal voters who are still remaining Liberal voters, You know, at 24 percent, it's much lower than it used to be, um, think that the prime minister should go. So there's, you know, almost an emerging consensus here um, uh, across Canada that it's time for a new leader of the Liberal Party.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, does this equate to, I mean, is this different than uh, approval versus disapproval? You know, should we distinguish between those two questions or what those numbers might be?
3: Yeah, yeah, well, and, 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 you know, our approval ratings actually uh, aren't too bad. They're in the sort of low or high 30s, low 40s, depending on the day of the week. Um, but uh, those don't usually translate into votes, right? You can say, well, he's done a decent job. He's been around eight years. You may have agreed to some things. You may disagree with some things. And, you know, you, 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 you may be saying he do, he does all right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that. Another couldn't do better and that you don't desire change. And three-quarters of Canadians uh, say that there should be change in Ottawa, not just, you know, at the prime minister's spot, but, it, you know, a change, yeah. of, uh, a change of party. And that's why I think we see the Conservatives at 40% of the popular vote being, you know, one of the primary beneficiaries of the Liberal collapse.
0: Yeah, which you know puts them on track to a big majority government. And it's interesting, too, when you go down the list of some of the big issues and, and who do you trust to handle those issues? Inflation, housing, the economy, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, the Conservatives tend to come out ahead. There are even some issues where the NDP comes out ahead. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of good news there for the Liberals.
3: No, uh, and, and that really is the key to winning an election whenever it comes. It is to demonstrate to Canadians that you understand what's on their minds and that you can help uh and uh, the liberal government is not seen as helping anymore and in fact on any of the top issues from inflation to health care housing the economy taxes climate change the liberals are chosen as the best to lead on none of them the conservatives lead on inflation housing economy and taxes the ndp lead on health care poverty social inequality the green party on on um climate change And as I said, the Liberals on none. So you can see why uh, they're struggling in in the popular vote, because they've essentially lost the confidence of Canadians to fix uh, what ails us.
0: Right. And I mean, things can change in politics. I mean, you know, talk about a 12-point swing from September. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's the possibility, theoretically, anyway, that you could see a 12-point shift in the other direction. But I, I guess that, you know, the big challenge here is that when you've been empowered this long, that's hard to overcome. And we've seen it in the past, right, where Canadians kind of get to a point like, yeah, you've been around long enough. We've kind of had enough of you. I don't, I don't know how, how you counter yeah. that
3: well what what new are we going to learn at this point about yeah. the prime minister what sort of positive trait has he been bottling up for 8 years that he hasn't you know uh, used yet so i don't think there are going to be any any surprises i think it would be very very difficult for him to to turn things around at this point because it, it seems to have gotten personal right it's not just we need a change of government it's okay even if the government doesn't change we need a, we need a new prime minister you know because we're in a in a uh, still technically 2 years away from an election unless uh, the position pulls the pulls the plug it feels a lot like mulrooney right it it feels like the tide has turned and there's no going back and the longer that the prime minister stays i fear the more damage will be done to the to the liberal party and they're not far away from third place and if they do drop consistently to third place in the polls why would the ndp and the other parties continue to prop them up
0: it's a big question. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Sean, appreciate the overview of these uh, latest numbers. Thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure. All the best. That's Sean Simpson, senior VP with Ipsos. A new polling uh, for Global News finds yes on the, uh, the party race. 40% support for the conservatives, just 24 for the liberals. Uh, they need to be looking over their shoulder. There's the NDP uh, behind them at 21%. It's almost a statistical tie there. So basically you're fighting to be the opposition party at this point and what uh, would likely be a majority government, based on those numbers. But yeah, the bigger challenge here for the liberals is how people feel about the leader. Now, if the liberals change leaders, you know, you'd still have some of these issues. But I think it's to the point where as much as Trudeau was an asset, it feels like he's become a liability at this point for the party. 72% of all respondents think he should go. 33% of self-identified liberal supporters think he should go. So you hear the answer from Christia Freeland. No, he's great. We love him. He's our leader. We support him. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program, friends. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. A lot more still to get to this afternoon, a very busy Wednesday uh, unfolding here today. You can reach us, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK, and we'll get to more of your phone calls and your texts along the way here. Off the top in this hour, though, a story about uh, artificial intelligence and how it's going to play a role in one specific industry. There's no question that AI technology is evolving rapidly. It's going to become more and more relevant to varying degrees uh, in our lives and in various industries. But what about in journalism? What about AI's role in keeping us informed? You know, there's no doubt. And and look, as we've been talking about the Online News Act, uh, that the future of journalism... is uncertain. It's a lot of evolution and tumult happening in the industry. And so what about AI? You know, can AI be a useful tool or is AI just going to add to to all of the chaos and uncertainty? Well, the center of all of this is a story this week involving Sports Illustrated, which was once a real crown jewel in the world of, of sports journalism. It was quite an institution. Maybe that's not so much the case anymore, but still, I think there's a certain amount of prestige that goes along with Sports Illustrated. Well, they've been caught using AI, and, and this is one of those areas in which it raises questions about, I guess, even journalistic ethics. Now, this was first broke by the outlet Futurism, uh, that Sports Illustrated had been publishing articles generated by artificial intelligence without announcing or, or describing them as having been generated by AI. What made it even weirder was the fact that these articles came with bylines, supposedly written by reporters, who had names and photos. Except it turns out those names and photos were also generated by A.I., so it does raise a, a lot of questions. Joining us to, to explore some of those uh, questions. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, John Affleck, who's night Chair in Sports Journalism and Society at the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Professor Affleck, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. So, I mean, first of all, how surprised were you by this? I was
4: so surprised that I didn't initially I thought the st- The futurism story was a hoax, Um, and then it was only sort of seeing the uh, reactions from uh, the union of human workers at Sports Illustrated, which was aghast, and um, the uh, statement that came out from the arena group, which is now the outfit that operates Sports Illustrated, that I really understood that this <laughs> this had really happened, and um, uh, like most people, I think I, I was I was pretty surprised by it, and and obviously uh, disheartened.
0: So, what does this represent? I mean, is this is this an ethical lapse, or, or how do we describe this?
4: It's certainly an ethical lapse. I mean, I, I feel like it doesn't even, in some ways, I feel like it doesn't even rise to the level of. An ethical question you know journalists um in north america abide by the the code of the society of professional journalists and the first uh the society of professional journalists and the first item in that code is um you know uh seek truth and report it mm-hmm. and um you know using this was a this was sort of this a weird um SI adjacent product where they were uh, ostensibly uh, evidently reviewing products and uh, where these where these articles were being used and I mean just the idea that you're not being truthful about how the um, article is generated or who's doing it. Um, just sort of fails the test on its face. I mean, it just isn't even, there isn't even anything to argue about, really.
0: Yeah, and especially now, the benefit of knowing what we know and going back and looking at some of these articles, like you see some of these, I don't know how to describe but very, you know, weird mannerisms, yeah. I guess, almost, that, that these, these AI text generators have, that it, it seems, okay, this a, a normal person, normal reporter wouldn't write this way.
4: Yes. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, you know, my, my big overall take and where it is is that um, in, in terms of journalism is there's there's a tendency when new technology uh, comes along to, uh, you know, there's a – sometimes people won't want to look at it and just want to pretend that it doesn't exist in other Others will say, oh, this is it. This is the thing that's going to save us. This is just like the new greatest thing that ever was. And the problem with that, uh, journalistically, and uh, when, it, when it comes to the industry of journalism, uh, is that if owners think that they're going to you know, have an easy, uh, easy way to pre- create content and cut a few corners it's not going to work out that way i right. mean it's not you know we think of ai as omniscient but you know in reality it's a dumb intern it's you know it it makes mistakes it does t- tells falsehoods it writes in clichés and as as you're sort of intimating the the structure can just look odd it doesn't look like a person wrote it so you know interns learn and the, and the algorithm will learn and mm-hmm. get better as time goes on but I think, I think all of these are a really good example of the way, as AI develops, that it's going to need human hands to guide it and to essentially act as, as editors and curators and figure out how to harness it in the best way, as opposed to just... oh. Uh, let it, let's let it run free and see what happens.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. On the one hand, you see how it can be almost a cheap and lazy way to cut costs and, and just generate content and not have to pay people. But on the other hand, I mean, if deployed correctly, it can be a useful tool in freeing up reporters to focus on certain things as opposed to maybe the more mundane. I mean, there's a lot of data and figures and statistics in sports that maybe AI can, can be useful in, in processing. So is, is there a useful role that you see for it? i do um
4: there there are there are a few ways um sort of compilation of statistics and and that sort of thing it obviously moves much quicker than you know the reporter with a you know calculator is going to be able to to do things but there there are other ways an example I'd use is um uh, the New York Times has used it um in its coverage uh, this gets away from sports but you could equally use it there um it it's, it's solicited questions on hot topics from, from readers, for instance, climate change. And then it's taken the family of answers that have come in on what questions do readers have about uh, climate change and broken them down into sort of categories. And then, and then the editors can look at these questions and formulate a question or two that, the, that staff reporters can answer. And so that's how they build they build some of their q and a s by looking at the large language model, seeing what what people are asking, formulating a general question, and then they can answer it so that's that's just one small example of of how it can be done. Um, when you talk about data, I think ultimately there will be some things to look at over the long haul that that could be very interesting about. You know, trends. There are a lot of things you could do in trends in sports and all that sort of stuff. Um, whether it be, you know, how effective is a is, is a is a free agent pitcher. You know, at what age is it bad to uh, re-sign somebody after you know for more than a year? That that sort of thing. I mean, the the stats will tell. Yeah. But um, but um, I think that that's the sort of it's good for sort of deeper look stuff as an aid to deeper look kinds of writing Um, I think a question we have to ask ourselves is if we're just using it for really mundane things do we need to be doing the mundane thing in the first place are people looking at that so a question for editors to ask themselves
0: yeah, and if if nothing else, there's maybe a silver lining here in that it's, you know, thrust all of this to the forefront. It's generating a lot of conversations. I mean, I understand you got your ethics class uh, coming up uh, soon here and, and an opportunity yeah. to, to really, you know, take a deep dive on, on these issues, right?
4: Sure. Uh, actually, uh, this morning what I did was uh, we've got a class tomorrow in my sports writing class that where we're going to look at an AI-generated piece against student copy. Um, uh, we had an assignment recently where just based on statistics and, and quotes. I asked students to formulate a game story and, um, uh, on a basketball game and I gave the same material to Chat GPT and the chat GPT version is much much worse than, than you know an a, a paper that would get an A uh, in, in my class, but it did manage to get, where it happened, and who won, and what the final score was, and all that sort of stuff. So it did get the the, the basics of it right. So I'll have the students talk about, you know, what what they see in it that um, they need to make sure is in their their uh, their work, but also how it's falling short, how something looks when it is really really, you know, unprofessional. Um, it's you know, it's a cliche ridden piece. And so, um, you know, I think it'll it'll show them how how it how something reads when it's really poorly done and how it sort of just feels very makes you feel very negative towards the writer and towards the (laughs) towards the piece. Well,
0: we'll leave there for now. John, appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here.
4: Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you very much.
0: All the best. Take care. That's uh, John Affleck, uh, Knight Chair in Sports Journalism and Society, the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications uh, down at Penn State. So, yeah, I mean, obviously embarrassing and and tarnishing the legacy uh, of Sports Illustrated, which, as mentioned, you know, had a lot of prestige once in the day. You know, I know magazine long-form journalism isn't what it used to be, but still, I think there's something to that brand. This really tarnishes that. Uh, so it speaks to kind of where we're at that this technology is there; it's there for outlets to try to do this, if they can somehow justify it to themselves. I mean, it, at this point, you, you don't think highly of your audience if you're going to pass this off as, say, here's our reporter and his his latest story. Uh, but it does allow for those just kind of you know quick, sloppy, lazy articles or content to be generated you throw it up there and uh, but that's not how things should work i I don't think i mean at the very least be honest about it because yeah if it's just if all you need is a very brief summary uh, on you know a certain game last night two or three sentences then yeah maybe that is one way to be more efficient uh, and allow your staff your reporters to you know spend more time on the stories they're telling because ultimately, I think good sports journalism is good storytelling. You know, the the, the scores, that stuff, sure. That's always just been, um, you know, straight up numbers. And AI can probably uh, really help with that. The presentation of scores and, and data, especially with, you know, more savvy sports fans these days really craving a lot of those analytics. You know, to have those kinds of tools at your disposal can really help navigate all of that and really help present it. Uh, To your audience in in a way that they can understand, and that would apply to uh, media in general, covering complex topics or, you know, when you got a 600 page budget, those kinds of things. So AI can be a useful tool, but an example here, maybe how not to use it or how we don't want to see it used. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.